This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. is Van Newkirk II. He is the senior editor at The Atlantic and host of the podcast Floodlines, and he is the author of a really powerful article uh, in The Atlantic called When the Myth of Voter Fraud Comes for You. Van Newkirk, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us on the Larry Daniel Favors Show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I was fascinated by this article and another one that you had written that talked about the the very infancy of voting rights and integration in this country. And you seem to have a line of understanding in your that sort of weaves through all of these writings uh, that really speaks to how vulnerable democracy is when it is exercised by black people in this country. Uh, In this uh, article that you had written, uh, When the Myth of Voter Fraud Comes for You, where you really focus on the case of of one Crystal Mason in addition to a number of others. Uh, in that piece, you said that the idea that systemic fraud has subverted the democratic process demands a search for evidence of such fraud. The point of this effort is not merely to support uh, the spurious claims that Donald Trump won the 2020 election or stockpile arguments in advance of 2024. You, you say, uh, Van, that it is to lay a foundation for the resurgence of a specific form of Jim Crow-style disenfranchisement. Can you unpack for us what you meant in those very few sentences that said way more than the words themselves actually convey. Yeah. Um, so what I was doing there, um, obviously the piece is about um, these investigations of voter fraud tend to be against, levied against uh, black and Latino folks, especially, and especially black and Latina women um, mm. and how they are, you know, presented as proof of the, you know, the, the fact that voter fraud happens and how they are prosecuted as individual cases. Uh, but really what's going on is when we take a step back and look at the state of our democracy and look at previous states of, I guess, quote-unquote democracy in America, it, you see a, a, a time, a regime, uh, policy emerging that to me is reminiscent of the dawn of the first Jim Crow in America. So you saw a uh, what, what happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It wasn't something that came out of nowhere. It was people, white folks, white supremacists, building up different ways to cast suspicion on black votes particularly. And mm-hmm to make it so both by law and by custom, black folks wouldn't be able Mm. to vote. So it made it harder to vote. And it didn't just make it illegal to vote. It made it so, you know, even if you were in a place where you were able to register and you did pay the poll tax and you did pass a test, that there were just so many obstacles in your way and so much informal intimidation that you wouldn't think to do it. And I think those type of soft exercises of disenfranchisement power. That's what's happening today. Mm. 
You said by law or by custom, and we oftentimes spend a lot of time focusing on the law, the way that legislation is being crafted so that it can prevent access to the ballot. But I want to talk a little bit more about the customs. What did the customs look like, in regardless of what the law said? What were the social norms and rules that were impacting whether or not black people had access to the ballot in that era that you talked about, that Jim Crow era? And then how do those customs show up today? Yeah, so in the other piece that you mentioned, um, where I wrote about the long arc of what we call democracy in America, or the very short life of it, the last 60 years, um, I talked about uh, LaFleur County, Mississippi, where my mother is from, and where at the passage of the VRA, the Voting Rights Act, in 1965, there was only a handful of of black folks who who, who were registered to vote, literally a handful. And the reason why, yes, it was because there were laws in the books like these poll taxes um, that formally kept them off the rolls. But also it was understood that, yeah, if you went around making trouble and thinking you were going to go vote and you went to the registrar, even if you were technically eligible under that law and were able to pay that tax, you knew somebody was coming to your house or you knew Mm. that all of a sudden – you were going to have your credit dry up, and you could not afford that as a farmer. Or you knew that there were going to be legal consequences. You were going to have people breathing down your neck. You were going to be uh, perhaps prosecuted and um, having to pay lawyer fees if you were, it were taken to court. And people couldn't afford that. And mm. I see that same sort of informal uh, custom developing uh, when we look at these prosecutions today. So you think about what happens if you're prosecuted for illegal voting or you're prosecuted for uh, having some mistake at the ballot or any type of thing that goes wrong. What has to happen first is you have to pay money. You have Mm -hmm. to take off time from your job to go to court. You have to deal with paperwork. And these are things that poor folks, especially um, that working class, black, brown folks, they just cannot handle. And And they're not things that, you know, show up in the laws of the land, but they are things that, if repeated over time, they become custom. Mm, you know, and I, when you say something like that, and then we, we juxtapose it against that phrase uh, that says uh, when there's a debate, a debate between law and policy or law and culture, that culture will eat law for lunch. So it doesn't even matter what is on the books uh, for determining who has access to the ballot and who does not. If the culture says if you access this opportunity to, to go vote, you're going to have a whole bunch of folks in white sheets as your door burning crosses, uh, then the custom and the culture are going to be determined determinative of your engagement, uh, regardless of what the law itself actually says. But when we think about the laws that are being passed right now, we are seeing the active use of legislation to ensure that as few people as possible have access to the ballot. In the case of today, and I'll be perfectly honest with you and a little transparent, uh, I am a fan of that phrase, and my audience knows this, that Marcus Garvey uttered, uh, what Africans have done, Africans can do. When I was a kid, that used to really inspire (laughs) me because, you know, I knew that, oh, we can build pyramids and we can create math and science and libraries. We're geniuses. Uh, And as an adult, I've come to realize, oh, that's not just applicable to us. What other people have done, they too can also do. Can you talk with us about the the ways that, yes, we're clear about how the laws that are sweeping the nation are impacting our ability to vote, vote, but what about the customs of today? What does American culture today indicate about who is going to have access to the ballot and who will not, regardless of what the law says? 
Well, yeah, one thing I'm I'm trying to counter in the piece um, in the uh, when the myth of voter fraud comes for you is the idea that all we should be looking at is whether individual laws or sets of laws affect turnout, right? And a lot what a lot of people have been doing recently is looking at say voter ID in Texas and seeing if it is affecting whether black people are coming to the polls or not in a single election. And if it doesn't, they say it's not. It doesn't, you know, create or promote voter suppression. And that's exactly the wrong way to look. You have to, as you just said, think about how customs are developed and uh, the things that we have done before. So if you think about these laws as signals, as part of a more holistic effort to get rid of black people in the polity, Mm -hmm. then you say, okay, we've got laws that are signaling from the top our hostility to your vote our ability to make it harder and harder for you to vote. We're signaling that while you may hustle and get to the polls, we don't really want you to be Mm, at the polls. Right. And what does that do? What kind of poison is that over time? And for me, that is the real danger, is that we live in a society where uh, we've seen from top to bottom, we've seen from state to state, yes, you have these laws coming up, you, you had what happened a year ago on, in the Capitol, which was a signal from the very top, from inside mm. the halls of power, that there was a contingent of people who had the power at their fingertips to overthrow the government, who believed in their bones that black votes were illegitimate. Mm. And those are the things That's right. that create a, a larger system beyond the law. And that's the world we live in. And, you know, what, the, what for me, what I keeps me up at night, and I mean that literally, both as someone who talks about this on this show every day, but who's also an, an attorney who deals in racial justice. One of the things that keeps me up about that, uh, Van, is the fact that those people who believe in their bones that black people are not legitimate voters, we are not legitimately part of, of the franchise uh, that is extended to who they determine to be Americans, is that a lot of those people left January 6th, or and even if they never went, they were ideologically aligned with it, and they are now uh, assuming offices. They are now uh, taking positions in, in election administration, and they are going to be the ones with their very firmly held beliefs that only white people who are voting in a particular way should have access to the ballot. They are going to be the ones making decisions that will impact our lives, much like the decisions that were made about Crystal Mason. Can you talk with us about who Crystal Mason was before she came into the national spotlight? Yeah, so Crystal Mason, um, before she came into the national spotlight, she was a, a mother, a, a black woman who was a mother, a grandmother, aunt, you know, all the things. And you know how the, that type of household works. She was the hub of a thriving household in the suburbs of Fort Worth and Dallas, Texas. Hmm. Um, she had, in t- 2016, she was actually coming home from a federal sentence for um, tax fraud. She had run a business, um, a tax filing business, where she had artificially inflated returns of some of her clients. So she was coming home. She was trying to readjust to uh, life in the world. She had a new job. And she was on uh, what's called a federal work release program, which is Mm. sort of like, you know, if you come out of state prison and you're on probation, you have to get a job, something like that, but it's not called that. And 
what happens, she obviously comes out in 2016. Her mother is looking at the news and seeing what's happening in 2016 and saying she needs to get out there and vote. Mm. And she understands, and, and what's on the, on the books is that, you know, you cannot go and vote if you're on probation or parole. But there was no instruction given to her directly that under Texas state law, she had to have finished all the terms of that federal sentence, including that work release in order to be eligible to vote. Wow. So she goes out unaware of that fact and goes to the polls and uh, tries to file a ballot. They say she's not on the rolls, but they give her a provisional ballot. She agrees with it, signs her name, and um, casts her ballot. And because she's ineligible, it's not counted as a vote. And two months later, she is prosecuted for illegal voting, despite, as you said earlier, that vote not counting. Now, let's t- let, I want to pause just a little bit and tease this out, because for a number of people, you know, this seems absolutely crazy. This is a woman who had a business. Uh, she is engaged in she files taxes on behalf of people. She she apparently, infl- as you said, inflated some of the returns. So y'all don't do that. Like I tell you all the time, mind your business and mind your paperwork. Don't do that. Uh, but she, she is released from prison. She's still basically uh, physically free, but still within under the supervision of uh, the criminal legal system. This provisional ballot that she used, we hear a lot about provisional ballots. What are they exactly, and what are they used for? How come she didn't get an actual ballot? Was that simply because she wasn't actually on the rolls? Yeah, so provisional ballots in most states are for that circumstance when you aren't on the rolls for any number of reasons. Uh, You know, our our voting rolls are uh, not always up to date with exactly where people live, with things like recent changes in status, like if you come off probation. Um, And so we offer for people who may be in that gray area, who may not show up as registered voters for that precinct, we offer them provisional ballots in lots of states, in every state. Um, The circumstances are different from state to state, but the general idea is the same. It's uh, we will have people who are going to go and determine if you are a valid voter for this precinct, and if you are, then it'll be counted when provisional ballots are counted. And if you aren't, then it won't. Um, mm. there's a, the entire setup for the process there is to make sure that you're eligible and to keep people who are not eligible from influencing an election. And it happened exactly the way it should in her case. And so that should have been, I feel like that should have been the end of the story. She tried to cast a ballot. I don't know from the record, at least from my reading uh, of yours and and of others who have talked about this, there was no demonstrated intentionality to uh, trick the system or to game the system. Uh, She tries to vote. She gets a ballot that is appropriate for people who are not on the roll. She casts that ballot. It's not counted, so it's not like it hurt anyone who was actually running. Why didn't the story end there? Well, yeah, you, you look at what, you know, Crystal, she told me, why would I do all this just to get a sticker? You think about mm. what happened in the county where she lives and the state where she lives. It wasn't like she was in a battleground or a swing county or state. She was in a red county in a very red state mm. that, you know, both went for Trump pretty heavily. It wasn't like her ballot, or, you know, it wasn't like she thought her ballot was going to be dispositive and in, in, in uh, affecting the level of change. She just did what her mother told her to do. Um, mm. And it's clear that even the prosecution did not believe that, you know, she had some sort of ulterior or nefarious motive there. Um, 
what happens is essentially as the case goes on, um, the court and the, the, the succession of courts there start to say that her intent is actually irrelevant. Um, oh, wow. That it doesn't matter that she didn't intend to go out there and cast uh, or, or cast a vote when she was ineligible. That didn't matter um, in, in the case that was brought forward. What mattered mm. was uh, essentially that she had made a mistake and that technically under the courts, uh, under its interpretation of the law, that mistake was uh, punishable by years in prison. Wow. Now, you know, voter fraud allegations are featuring, I mean, that is literally the GOP's calling card, that they are engaged in all of these voter suppression efforts, or what I call voter suppression, I think what what honest people call voter suppression efforts, I'm biased in that, but that's how I feel. Uh, We are seeing that they are worried about voter fraud in every single corner. They they say, you got some voter fraud. I mean, they're, they're going with Oprah on this one. You get a voter fraud allegation, you get a voter fraud allegation. They are pointing out a voter fraud all across the country that doesn't actually seem to be there. Why do these allegations feature so prominently in their talking points? Because what we do find evidence of voter fraud, we see people who are Republicans in states like Georgia, where at least three Republicans were uh, credibly accused of having filed a ballot in their state of Florida and back in their home state. Uh, Literally, there was a white Republican who voted on behalf of himself and his wife who had been dead many, many years. So we do see evidence of voter fraud but it seems to be that the people who are getting caught tend to be people who themselves are Republicans. Why is it that voter fraud concerns are so prominently featured in their talking points? Well, even if you look at those cases, uh, you know, especially the last election, uh, the face of voter fraud has uh, been a lot of folks who were really motivated to vote for Donald Trump. And they did in some cases multiple times. Or, you know, there were people who had no motive, and, and this happens a lot, um, they moved and accidentally voted in, in two different places or voted in one place when they weren't yet um, registered at a vote. It happens. It tends to be actually, um, in those cases, a lot of the people who get caught up are uh, older and you know, they're mm. more mobile folks who are, who are white. So they tend to be, um, in some places, Republican. It's not that they're, even in their cases, it's not that they're it's not always a motive. It's just, it's it, it's very difficult to vote in America. Mm. Um, and, but even if you take all those cases and, and, and package them up, you look at uh, the occurrence. We actually calculated the occurrence of impersonation, uh, which is you going and saying you are somebody else when you go vote right. um, in Texas based on their own records. And it's something like one in every 17 million votes, um, mm. which you know is it, less likely than being uh, struck by lightning twice. Uh, it's it is just not something that occurs, even if you take all these recent prominent cases and add them up on a level where you need any sort of additional legislation for it. It's just not. Uh, it's not a thing that affects or influences elections, and we can say that pretty confidently. 
And, and I, I'm glad that you ended with that point, that we can say this confidently because that's what the data sh- tells us. <laughs> that's what the evidence, that's what the facts say. Now, I have a suspicion, Van, I got to be honest with you. I feel like there is a connection between uh, the fact that we have a rising majority of non-white communities. There's a lot of population growth that's being driven uh, by Latino, Asian, and Black communities, almost in that order. Uh, and we're seeing a shrinking of white uh, voting age populations. And, and and at the same time, this avalanche of voter suppression efforts. Do these two things have anything to do with each other? Or is this just sort of a, a deviousness in my own mind? Well, I'll lay out facts for you. And I think then it'll, it'll help guide the conversation. Uh, an analysis that I relied on for the story from the ACLU of Texas found that it appeared to be the case that the majority of targets for voter fraud prosecutions were people of color. Mm, and that wow. is in a state where, uh, yeah, in, in places where they are not the majority of the population. Mm. It appears to be the case that under uh, the last round of voter roll purges in the last couple of elections in Georgia, the people who were most likely and far beyond their demographic share of the state to be affected by those purges were, again, black and Latino an Asian voter. Mm. Now, wow. you look at exactly how this plays out from state to state, from place to place. You look at the people who continue to be the targets of different laws that are knocking people off the rolls and who also are targeted the most by voter fraud prosecution. It becomes clear that even if it's not Uh, something that people are saying in the back room is that we want these people to not vote and we want to respond directly to these demographic changes. It is incontrovertible that the Mm. people who are getting knocked off our rolls the most are the people who are adding demographic pressure, we'll say. Mm. Very, very well done in a very reporterly type of way. <laughs> it's very nice. So you laid out the facts. I'm going to add the opinion, which is like, they're racist. Uh, okay, but that's just me. Thank you for, for sticking to the facts and allowing me to extrapolate therefrom. Uh, one of the things that you said in your article was that if we don't get something done in terms of new legislation at the national level, that the state laws that are limiting our access to the ballot would only be blocked if the courts found them to be discriminatory after they have passed into law. Uh, That's basically an outgrowth from the Shelby County v. Holder decision, that 2013 Supreme Court decision that basically removed one of the major pieces of of teeth, one of the swords of the Voting Rights Act, which was uh, the preclearance provision. And according to preclearance, if you were going to uh, change your election rules in any way, and you came from a jurisdiction that had a history of racially uh, allowing access to the ballot or racially restricting access to the ballot, had to get those suggested changes pre-cleared. And if you sent your changes, you know, you say, hey, DOJ, I want to close down all of the poll sites in the black and brown communities. The DOJ would say, eh, sorry, you failed pre-clearance. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You do not get to stop black and brown people from voting. But once the Supreme Court undid that, once they gutted that portion of the Voting Rights Act, you point out that what we basically now have is a situation where uh, people can get elected into office 
under voting plans that might ultimately prove to be unconstitutional. But once they're already in office, they can then enact rules that further restrict voting. Am I to understand from this that basically the Supreme Court decision in 2013, it was kind of like a cheat code for those of you who like are from like the Sega Genesis era of video games. Like, was that like a cheat code that basically gave these folks who already don't want black and brown people voting? Was that the code that they needed to allow them to hijack the system so that they can pass voter rules and changes that are inequitable bear and increase the burden on black and brown people themselves get into office and once they've gotten into office on these otherwise illegal voting regimes they can then legitimize those very same previously unlawful methods to stay in office yeah i think you've, you've described it. it uh pretty well there yeah it's it's essentially the incentive after 2013 is to move as fast and put as much stuff out there as possible. Yes, some of it will be considered unconstitutional as it goes into court challenges, and it may even be rolled back. But once you have it in place, you know, you can move faster than the defenders can often. You can move faster than the courts can. So you can create a reality, say, with a gerrymander and then with the gerrymandered legislature going and putting out more voter ID laws by the time they're challenging that gerrymander, people are already voting under the voter ID law. Mm. That is, and that's the incentive now, is, is people who want to restrict uh, black votes in particular, they are now, it's not just a case where the floor is open for them. The essential one way you can read the Shelby County decision is that it, it encourages them almost, it incentivizes mm. uh, them to basically put out all the legislation they want as fast as possible and get as much of it out there so it comes up to work. And uh, pardon me for being a little, uh, you know, <laughs> too on the nose, but isn't that exactly what's happening right now? <laughs> like, like they have, I feel like that's exactly what they've done. They have passed as many pieces of legislation as they possibly could to be as far reaching as they possibly can to stop non-white people from voting. And that to me, it feels like, you know, if I were, if I were masterminding this out as like a play or a three-part sketch of some sort, it feels like having the Supreme Court take away the most powerful prevention to voter suppression at the same time that you have got these elected officials who are doing everything they can to make it more difficult to vote. I would feel like it would be a little too, I would say, no, that can't work. That's going to be too obvious. Nobody's going to buy that. You're not going to have the Supreme Court undermine voting rights at the same time that people are trying to make it harder for black and brown people to vote. That could never happen. You're being too extreme. But we're in a reality where it feels like that is exactly what has happened. When you think about that, and when you think about all of the reporting that we have seen, uh, even going back so far as to look at what happened under the 2020 census, and this is a bit outside the scope of your most immediate article, uh, but even looking at the 2020 census, when uh, in states like North Carolina, there is evidence introduced into court that talks about the fact that the people drawing those lines, those, uh, those district maps in back at the previous uh, redistricting cycle, that they were literally attempting to do so in a way that didn't just minimize the black vote, didn't just minimize the Latino and the Asian vote, but also minimized the white Democrat vote. They literally were drawing maps to benefit not all white people, because they did not believe all lives matter, uh, but to benefit white Republican voters. When that's the reality that we're in, do you think it's too extreme to say that in order to win, Republicans believe they literally have to stop, not, stop everyone who's not a white Republican from accessing the ballot? 
Well, I mean, I think you've had some Republican operatives who have admitted as much. So I don't know if it's a stretch to say it at all. At all, mm. There have been people who've laid out the strategy, which is you've got to both maximize the turnout and the uh, power by way of maps of older white you know, Republican voters. And you have to also at the same time minimize by all the levels. And that's mm. whether it's making voting more difficult whether it's increasing prosecutions, whether it's increasing the inconveniences, or whether it's, you know, packing and cracking black and Latino districts. Um, And those operatives, the people who are behind uh, state-level redistricting uh, initiatives for Republicans, they're pretty clear. That's the strategy. Mm -hmm. It's not not something that's secret. It's not something that is, you know, forbidden to say. It is is there. It's out there. And it is – uh, how things are working, and it's, it's how the last year has played out. I think you, the reality on the ground is, as we head into whatever these midterm elections are in 2022, as we head toward them, um, it, it, even now, uh, the average black voter, the average person in a majority black district, has less political power than they had before. Mm. That so- is where we are. So, y'all, when I say they don't want us voting, I'm not just being hyperbolic. You heard it from the man himself. He just told y'all I'm not being extra. Like, it's literally the world we are living in. And it's not just black voters who are at risk. Uh, Your story also talked about uh, the case of of Rosa Maria Ortega. Can you give us a little bit of insight of what happened to her? And, And she is someone who was voting for Republicans, if I understood your article correctly. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, Rosemary Ortega, she was uh, born in Mexico and was uh, taken to Texas as an infant. And um, she basically lived her entire life as if she believed she was a citizen. She did all the things that citizens do. She registered to vote. There were no uh, you know, problems until she tried to move to another county and re-registered to vote and uh, was found to be a non-citizen and was prosecuted uh, for illegal voting by a non-citizen and was given, uh, I think, eight years in prison. And she ended up not serving. uh, She served, I think, uh, the majority of a year in a federal facility and was let out. Uh, But if you're a non-citizen who who has a felony sentence, essentially, you know, you only live here at the grace of ICE. She Mm. is now subject to immediate deportation. Um, and that is essentially for a person, again, who has no motive, who, as you said, registered Republican and actually voted for the district attorney and uh, uh, the attorney general who ended up prosecuting her. Um, you know, she did not have a motive to uh, disrupt or, you know, challenge an election. She was living as a citizen and ended mm-hmm. up being prosecuted and sentenced as if she were somebody who were trying to overthrow the democracy. Wow. You know, we have, even though this is the Urban View Network, we have a number of our listeners, a, a, a sizable chunk, actually, of listeners who are uh, white-identified people. 
And if you are a white identified person and you listen to this show for any length of time, often the question that many of you have, and I know because I see your emails, is what can I do about it? Uh, I am white, many will say. I don't believe that this is the right thing that we should be doing. What is my role in standing up against this sort of repression? Uh, Van, what would you say to the average listener uh, right now who is incensed by what we're talking about? I've been talking about voting rights all morning, so hopefully they're really incensed enough to call their elected officials uh, and demand that the Senate pass this new legislation uh, that is currently at the, in debate on the floor. What would you advise listeners to do in response to all of the things that you talked about in this article? And quite frankly, in response to everything that we're seeing happening in the country all around us. Yeah, so I don't know if I'm in a place to give a whole lot of good advice, uh, especially because it depends on where you live. But I think what's been true and what's always been true is that bad faith in this system, it relies on people who do have goodwill, who do care about others. Uh, it relies on them uh, not participating. Mm. And I think for a very long time, the, for the last, you see it happening even now, uh, the last few elections, the narrative has been, you know, black folks have been saving the country. They've, come, they've turned out against the odds. They've come out and they've overrepresented, even though they've been the targets of these laws. But what could be happening is instead of them being having that double burden, you could have more white folks who are, say, getting out and going to administer the elections fairly, who are mm -hmm. getting involved in the process, who are trying to take some of that burden away. Because, that's, I mean, you're looking forward, it's unclear if people yeah. of color especially are going to be able to keep up these incredibly time-intensive, money-intensive turnout efforts at every election. Uh, mm. to, to, you know, every, every election now is getting sold as uh, them coming out to save democracy. That's not sustainable. It's not. And it's, very, yeah. it, it, it's, it's something that takes a toll on people. It takes a toll on the workers to go out there and try to get people out. Uh, and what I think the role of, of, of white folks who are interested in, in living in a democracy should be is participating in democracy. Mm. I need my our, our righteous whiteness, as one of my good friends calls themselves. <laughs> uh, I need y'all to weaponize that whiteness and make sure that you are in the spaces and rooms that we cannot access and use your power for good. Uh, we're, we're literally at a point right now where they're not just coming for black votes. They're not just coming for brown votes. Uh, they're also coming for white votes who do not vote uh, the way Republicans want you to vote. As, as Van has pointed out, as I have said several times, I've quoted several times, they are literally saying the quiet parts out loud and they're saying it with the full chest uh, so it's going to be really important that we have an all hands on deck moment right now uh, it's not a, it's not hyperbole to say uh, th this democracy is at stake like I, I'm telling y'all, it is not a, a stretch. We have gone down these roads before. We have seen how nations uh, have had to navigate these questions before. And if people do not stand up and do what is right in the right time, uh, then we, and by that I mean right now, uh, then we can go the way that others have gone. And it is not a beautiful picture at all. It is a very ugly, ugly picture. And on the other side of that, uh, people who believe in freedom and justice often find that they are the least empowered to preserve and advance it. Van Newkirk. 
Kirk, it has been a real pleasure having you here. Thank you so much uh, for putting this article together. I have enjoyed reading uh, your writings at The Atlantic for a minute. At some point, I would love for you to come back to talk about uh, the thread that democracy is hanging on by. This article that you'd also written, American Democracy is Only 55 Years Old and Hanging by a Thread. I give it two extra years. I usually say it's only 57 years old, uh, but we are right in alignment with understanding about how risky <laughs> and how... Um, how frankly, how delicate the threads are that are holding this nation together. And I think uh, I, I want to thank you for putting that out there uh, and writing it with your full chest so that people could be very clear about exactly what it is that we are facing. Thank you so much for being here. And how can people follow you and stay connected to your work? Oh, thank you. Um, you can read me at The Atlantic. And uh, if you really uh, have feedback, you can email me at Van, that's V-A-N-N, at TheAtlantic.com. V-A-N-N at TheAtlantic.com. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.